Welcome to A Pitcher Full, where we explore all the different ways that we fill up our wellness glass. This week, I speak with Ayman, a mindfulness teacher, neuroscience researcher, and TEDx speaker, to learn about how trauma can manifest in the body and how mindfulness can heal. Ayman, thank you so much for joining me recording for A Pitcher Full. I am really excited to have you on and for my listeners to hear all that you have to say. So thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I want to hear a little bit of your story of how you came to do what you do. I understand that a part of your story is having two near-death experiences and that one of them brought you to mindfulness. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So um, as a child, I actually faced a very unfortunate event um, at seven. Um, I was molested and um, I as many kids would, I didn't know how to process that. Um, So I kept it a secret. And so I thought until two months later, I lost 10% of my body weight. And it turned out that I was diagnosed with tuberculosis. So this event kind of gave me a meaning to the mind-body connection at a very early age. Uh, But then I kind of lost touch with it until later on in my life, about 17 years later, I had a very bad experience again. And at that point, because I was a grown-up, I decided to face it head on. And I really needed to kind of find myself. Um, so I, someone introduced me to mindfulness. Uh, I'm trying to think who it was, but it's probably one of my friends. And ever since then, um, I started practicing and noticing a huge change, uh, not just in my mind, but also in my uh, health. I became less sick. Uh, in general, less colds and um, sore throats and so on. Um, So that just made me even more curious because at first, my first experience introduced me to sort of a near fatal effect of stress. And the second experience showed me how if you remove stress from the equation through mindfulness, in this case, you can actually get healthier. So I started researching what that really meant. I was, uh, I still am kind of cynical. So um, that led me to do a lot of research on the topic. And I have a few published papers on that too. Um, And indeed, what I found was no surprise that there is a direct connection between the state of mind, i.e. stress and mindfulness, and the body. I also teach mindfulness, of course, because I figured what saved me could save many others. Hmm. Can I ask you to back up a little bit to when you were seven, um, and you said that you made the realization that there is a connection between, I guess, your emotional self or stress and what's going on in the body. Do you know or remember how you made that connection? Was there an adult that helped you make it or did was that sort of an, an internal instinct? It was an instinct. And part of it was a revelation that kind of happened through time hmm. um, because... Uh, You know, sort of the concept of time is rather different when you're a child. Uh, You don't quite correlate 
certain events to certain others uh, in terms of, okay, there may be a causality between that uh, event and the uh, the stress and the illness. Uh, but uh, basically, as I look back, it was very clear to me that I was keeping that secret. No one knew what happened. And I honestly didn't even know what happened mm-hmm. as a child, but I just knew that there was a threat to my existence. And you know, within a couple of months, I got sick mm. uh, to the point that I was dying. Mm. So, yeah, I, I would say to answer your question, I think um, it was a gradual realization. Um, but I also knew that there was something freaky that hap- <laughs> happened uh, that I couldn't explain, um, you know. I see. And later when you were a teenager and had your second experience, did you connect the two feelings of having a a stress response and a body response to the same, I guess, experience? It was similar. Uh, So the second experience was actually, um, you know, an abusive relationship um, that I was in. It was my early 20s, and uh, it was uh, it was a very distinctively different experience from what happened in my childhood, uh, but it kind of falls in the same bucket in terms of uh, suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as suffering is concerned, there were two form of suffer- forms of suffering, but it's essentially a threat to your safety. And uh, from that standpoint, yes, they were similar, but in terms of experiences, they were very different experiences, both unpleasant, but the second time I actually didn't get sick. Mm. That's when I uh, was more conscious of what was happening, and I knew that there was the only way out was to go inwards basically mm-hmm. that's uh, that's when i meditated i started my meditation practice okay and now looking back at it um with your expertise or or the things that you've studied now can you see um i know that you've spoken a little bit before where i or I've seen you speak about almost an autoimmune response or an immune response to stress. Um, I would love to hear a little bit about how that works. Not not just with you, but you know, sort of after the research that you've done. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this this is a research paper that I call my third child. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and it's available for free to everyone. It's an open access. Uh, but essentially, the research was stemmed out of that curiosity. Does it really happen? You know, what is the connection between the mind and the body? So yes, you're right. It happens to everyone. So the way it works is stress, you can look at stress and mindfulness or happiness, as uh, Buddha called dukkha and sukha. Stress is any form of anxiety, sadness, negativity, or mental chatter. I would group them all together. That's dukkha. Sukha, on the other hand, is a state that's devoid of all of those. So happiness Mm. is basically just a very simple concept. It doesn't have to be ecstatic, but it's rather the absence of stress. Now, when stress happens, uh, unfortunately, we have to start, begin our story with the negative things that happen, and then it becomes easier to explain what the positive effects are of meditation. So when when we are stressed, and by that, 
could be just subliminal negative thinking even. What we're doing is essentially triggering our stress response. Our body's stress response is originating from, it could originate it originate from our any of our five senses essentially we have these neurons constantly firing and relaying messages to our brain so whenever we see something that we think is uh, questionable or if we think of something questionable both could trigger so an external stimulus or an internal thought stimulus could trigger a stress response which is the fight or flight response which in popular culture we know about is something that was originally designed to save us from predators. Now, as you could tell, a stress response is rather severe for a negative thought, but that's how our body reacts when we even have a worrisome thought or we're under deadline and constantly worried uh, if we could make it. What, What it does then is it triggers our sympathetic nervous system and our uh, HPA axis, which is our neuroendocrinal glands, to secrete really harmful hormones. Uh, that includes steroids, adrenaline, and so on, to basically give us the jolt of energy to run away from this imaginary predator. Mm. What that does in turn is triggers the immune system because if we were to be attacked by a predator, then the predator must have left some wounds. Hmm. And what does an open wound do to us? It uh, opens us up to receive germs, bad germs from outside and get us sick. So what this immune trigger does after a stress response is it starts bombarding. There are cells specialized for this, bombarding every single tissue in our body. But the caveat to this is in a healthy body, otherwise healthy body, which is having a stressful thoughts, these cells start bombarding healthy tissues Hmm. all over the body and creating literal holes. For example, your gut, our gut, is one of the most vulnerable things. Uh, That also starts having holes on it if we are subjecting ourselves to stress, especially prolonged stress. And as soon as we have holes, we actually let real germs in and we get sick. Um, And this is actually widely studied, um, especially with the gut, because, you know, gut... IBS, IBD, irritable bowel syndrome is very commonly studied to understand mind-body connection. And that's exactly what happens. So in other words, when, when we're stressed, our body starts attacking itself, just as an autoimmune disease would do. Mm-hmm. I know that there are many in the community um, feel very strongly, and there's a lot of research going on, to find a connection in autoimmune disease and um, past traumas. So it sounds like your research would be along the lines of, yes, past traumas can cause autoimmune diseases. Would that be correct? Yeah, uh, I would say so. Um, There are obviously scientific research has to be a little more um, 
specifically done, and I haven't done it, uh, but I know that there are others that have. Um, so, like I said, if you look at uh, PubMed or Google Scholar, you would be able to see that there are trauma-based or stress-based responses um, in the body that are sort of autoimmune in nature. Um, you know, you can take example of IBD, IBS are not quite autoimmune diseases, but they are gastrointestinal diseases that have no explanation of origin other than stress. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so th- there are various others. Uh, you know, fibromyalgia um, is another one, um, but there there are various others you could see as an example. I see. So um, I've spoken about this with another one of my guests about the healing powers of um, emotional release. Um, I, my first guest that I had on the podcast spoke about her autoimmune struggle and how she was doing lots of things physically. But when she did um, things like Reiki and therapy, all of a sudden her body began to heal. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's almost like Uh, the emotional trauma, it's as if the body just continuously is attacking itself. Can you, do you know why, have you seen in your research why the body doesn't stop attacking itself once the trauma experience is over? Is there an explanation for that? Well, the way I look at it is as long as any form of mental stress continues, the the effects, the physical effects of that stress continue. Mm. It becomes chronic in nature. And by that, I what qualifies is thinking about it, thinking about a trauma or a traumatic event over and over again or having an internal mental chatter mm-hmm. uh, could equate to or trigger uh, chronic stress conditions. And that's that's why I would imagine there would be a lot of recurring um, manifestations in the body. I mean, on the flip side, though, uh, if you remove that stress, through, say, med- meditation. Yes, that was going to be my next question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, basically, what we're doing is we're removing that incessant attack of the body on itself. Mm-hmm. And uh, what that means is there are no more holes on the healthy tissues and the tissues remain super healthy. It's almost like we're retaining our natural selves, which is pretty perfect. Uh, And when that happens, uh, one of the things that we found in our research is the gut, for example, because we, we go back to the gut because that's one of the biggest internal organs. And it also houses, uh, 10% of the internal microbiota. Mm -hmm. So you must have heard of gut microbes, which are healthy, good microbes for our body. So when we're not stressed, and this is a very novel finding in our research, is our gut wall stays intact, just as it does when we're little babies, because we haven't been touched by the harmful effects of the outside world. Uh, And the gut microbes perform at their highest levels. And they generate something, an enzyme, 
called HDAC inhibitor. Okay. And this enzyme is an epigenetic enzyme. What that means is it actually changes our genes throughout the body globally in two ways. These, this is a very good enzyme. One is it is an anti-inflammatory enzyme. And second, it's anti-tumor. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that this enzyme has been used um, for immunotherapy. So, you know, if your body is generating something that's so powerful, then um, through natural means, why not create that environment for the body? Mm-hmm. To encourage it to produce more of that enzyme. Yes, yes. And and what that means is anti-tumor means you wouldn't hopefully have cancer. I mean, we can't always say that we have cancer for one reason or the other, but um, HDAC inhibitor being there actually prevents tumor growth, which is a big cause of cancer. Mm-hmm. And also anti-inflammation. So, you know, you don't have inflammation in the body, so you don't get sick that often. That's incredible. So would you say that um, that might sort of explain or or be sort of the outline of what happens when people feel that prayer has helped them? Because I've, I feel like prayer is a type of meditation, or maybe meditation is a type of prayer. Um, would that be a part of it? I would think so. I would definitely think so. So uh, in our study, all we said was, you know, you remove the stress, and this is what happens. So there are various ways that we can train ourselves to remove that stress. One could be prayer. Another could be meditation. Um, it could be eating healthy. It could be exercise. There are, or a combination of all of these. Yes, but definitely yes. I see. And so one could say that the more you meditate, the better chance you have of of preventing tumor growth and and of turning off the inflammatory response in your body? Yes, 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 absolutely. In fact, that's one of the things that has been found in um, a lab in Wisconsin, uh, which specializes in meditation mindfulness effects. And basically, they, co- they were able to positively correlate Uh, The amount of this HDAC inhibitor enzyme, which is the epigenetic enzyme, to the years of practice in meditation. Um, So in other words, if you have meditated for a longer time, you produce more of this uh, good enzyme. Hmm. So interesting. So are there any cancer centers who are implementing this in their um, course of treatment that you know of? Um, the, the cancer t- centers do use um, histone deacetylase inhibitor, this inhibitor that I talked about in a chemical form. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, of course, need insurance to, to use to that. I mean, uh, mindfulness. Are, are there any cancer centers that are using mindfulness and meditation? Yes. 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 Many, many. That's becoming more ma- mainstream. Um, of course, there is more research that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Um 
to prove uh, or prove the efficacy entirely, but that's with any novel treatment. Mm-hmm. But cancer is definitely something that mindfulness is being used for, or meditation in general. Okay. Um, so let's talk about an, um, giving our listeners sort of something that they can sort of take with them in a way to, if they haven't started their journey on mindfulness and meditation, or if they are a way to improve and enhance, what would you say a healthy practice? I mean, to me, it sounds like, you know, meditation needs to be a part of just like going to the gym and exercising and and eating well. Mm -hmm. So how would someone, how do you suggest someone incorporate it into their routine um, in their day-to-day life? What would that look like? Like how long should they do it? What kind of meditation should they be doing? That's a great question. Um, Thanks for asking. My biggest takeaway would be uh, for the listeners is practice meditation as as if it is the workout for your mind, like you said. Mm -hmm. Um, Do it 10 minutes, if not 20 minutes, do it 10 minutes a day. Find a time that you're not interrupted. That could be the morning for some. For me, it's the noon. Some, it could be the night. Mm -hmm. Um, Just sit still and train your mind to bring it back to the present moment. So that's the practice of meditation. But what we really want to do to reduce or hopefully eliminate stress someday is using this control, the muscle, the mental muscle, if you will, and extending to our daily lives. So the second thing I want them to practice, if possible, is if a situation arises during the day, and I'm sure it does for all of us, is we're not liking to be there. Something Mm -hmm. is not very palatable. Just take a pause and tune into a present moment anchor, such as the breath, and just reset the mind. And this just takes a couple of seconds. And then do what you have to do if if there is any actionable item to stop that stressful event from happening. If there isn't an actionable item, simply just accept it and move on. (laughs) So those are really the two takeaways. Practice meditation where you're practicing the muscle power of your mind. But use the second thing is use that muscle power throughout your day. I think that that we can do that. Are there places or or types of medication, uh, medication, meditation, (laughs) I'm going to call it my medication from now on, um, that you think are a great entry level, like um, either websites that people can look into or books or or types of meditation that you think are helpful for beginners? So, of course, I personally love the MBSR, the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Meditation. Okay. um, Which is simply a variation of Vipassana. And the reason why I like it is because... There is, um, it, it is one of the types of meditation that has been uh, the most evidence-based. Okay. Uh, in other words, it has been um, tested in the labs and various clinical settings, and its efficacy has been seen. That said, I would say 
you know, you could go to YouTube, you could found, find MBSR. There are various teachers that have pre-recorded um, meditations. Actually, my website has free audio uh, guided meditations okay. for kids and adults. Uh, but essentially, the main idea is to constantly come back. The mind will drift away. That's what the mind does when we sit through the meditation. It's learning how to bring it back to, say, the breath. Okay. That's one of the anchors. And that's all we have to do. And it is frustrating to sit still like that uh, for 10 minutes, 20 minutes. The longer you do, the better effects you get. But that we want that frustration because that's what opens up something. Mm. How does the frustration open up something? How does that work? What's, um, that's a great question. Um, I, my personal experience is when I went on a silent meditation and the first four hours, after that first four hours, I thought I'm going to leave. <laughs> and, and that's when, but... Within 15 minutes after that extreme frustration, I suddenly realized that I was there, uh, not just physically, but something happened. There was a switch that switched on, and I was fully present. So I, in my personal experience, that's what I have to use to explain what happened was a fr when I experienced that frustration, and I was at first it was nagging, and I think my mentally I was trying to do something to stop that frustration. The moment I let go and said, "Okay, this is it. I just have to accept that I have to sit still," and that boredom became so enjoyable. Hmm. And I think mindfulness is about stopping that mental chatter and become such a beautiful experience. Hmm. Okay. Um, you mentioned something a couple of minutes ago about children, and I was introduced to you through a workshop for families. I would love for you to speak a little bit about what um, mindfulness looks like with uh, children and for families. Thank you for asking that. That's my favorite topic. And I think you were a perfect role model for that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you um, so the thing that you did very well, and that's what I encourage all parents to do, is first use your own practice. So children are sort of, so ch children are really high stake responsibilities in life. While it's extremely rewarding to be a parent, it's also extremely scary sometimes that because we're responsible for these lives and we don't want to mess it up. Mm -hmm. That's where the stress comes from. But wherever there is a source of suffering such as this, um, <laughs> there is also an opportunity to learn. Um and the, the side effect of using, becoming mindfulness, using this experience of parenting is um, we're modeling a mindful experience for our children. 
So they grow up to be mindful. Mm. Uh, so the biggest tip for parents that I have is become mindful yourselves. Mm. And then the children follow suit. So I have two little boys. Uh, they're five and a half year old twins. I've never forced them or pushed them to meditate. Because at this age, it's very difficult to meditate. And I also think meditation should be a voluntary experience. Um, but guess what? As they see me meditating, as they see me trying to practice mindfulness in our daily lives, they actually meditate. Um, there is also something I do. Um, there, is ver there are various tips of, uh, you know, we could use as parents. One is instead of time out at our home, we simply have a concept of breathing space. Hmm. So time out seems a little bit... Um, punitive and uh, isolating but, yes but there is a benefit to uh you know reducing the sensory overload to calm someone down including ourselves so what we do is we present it in a way saying look you know it, it seems like you're having a tough time how about you go to your room or your corner whatever they have as a sign spot and breathe Maybe at first you, we train them to do that. Mm. We do it with them. Um, and sometimes when their children are not always predictable, sometimes they would want to do this, especially when they see it helps them. But sometimes they don't want to. They become super hysterical. At that point, I always suggest to parents to uh, use a breathing sc a space for themselves. As long as the child is safe, just um, deprive some of the sensory overload. Like we talked about at first, that stress comes from all these neurons that are firing through our senses. Um, so if we could shut down some of those uh, firing, so we remove ourselves from the scene that is causing, say, a tantrum. So we see that the tantrum is happening. We hear the screaming. That's very stressful. So the two senses that are being ignited right now is the visual stimulus and the auditory stimulus. So if we just remove ourselves from the scene and go to another room, we still hear it, but we're distancing ourselves a little bit and focus on our breathing. Even if it's for a minute or half a minute, we calm down as parents and our non-reactive response becomes a model for the child. And at the, at the end, we're also better off trying to deal with this stressful tantrum. Hmm. And does that in turn show um, your children that you can be upset or have an emotion but not react? Exactly. Is that what I'm getting yeah. from that? Yeah. Yep. Yep. You are the role model. They do look up to you us as parents so if we show that we were able to deal with that emotion uh, without reeling out their tantrums become easier to deal with because they're still growing their brains are growing they're learning and why not be their learning experience mm, okay uh, the other the other thing along those lines is uh, what's helpful is uh, 
to identify, label the emotions. And that's helpful for ourselves. It's also helpful exercise to do with children. So what are you for children and small children, especially say up to five, even seven years, um, we could give them three choices. Are you feeling happy, frustrated, or sad? And let them pick. Hmm. So as soon as you give them multiple choice, they understand and it's easier for them to pick from the set of emotions. And you'd be surprised that they do start picking really well. And as soon as they do, <laughs> yeah, as soon as they do, they also start, we can train them to say, okay, now, so I see you're feeling embarrassed. Um, what could we have done instead of hitting or throwing a fist? Um, what could we have done better to show that an embarrassment? Embarrassment is normal. I feel embarrassed too. So there, uh, these are techniques we could use along with mindfulness to kind of diffuse the situation with kids. Interesting. So... Would you say that as the children get older, they will sort of put themselves in a, I don't want to say timeout, but in a space of uh, just space, they'll take their own space yes, and take themselves out of the situation. About how many years does that take? <laughs> uh, um, if we do it right, it starts happening. So they obviously have to uh, understand the concept. So that, you know, that and along with our own mindfulness practice, um, we could expect within a few months start understanding the concept of hmm. this breathing space. But it also depends on the, on the child's age because at different ages, their understanding is slightly different. Um, if, if, you, if a child is, say, four, four years old, they would pick it up in a month or two. Hmm. If it's a two-year-old, uh, it's probably going to take, take a little bit more time and a little bit different delivery for them to understand. Mm -hmm. I see. And um, would you suggest, even when there isn't a tantrum, trying to practice meditation with your kids? And if so, what does that look like with children? So with children, especially young ones, it's a little bit difficult for them to stay focused more than uh, a few minutes. Um, so seated meditation is generally difficult with kids. Um, but what I find very helpful, especially for kids that are up to six or seven years old, is um, spending uh, playing with them mindfully hmm. so um, and following their lead while they do that um, what happens is they get your undivided attention and we stay mindful see even if it's for five minutes of that play session they're getting our undivided attention we praise them for everything they do say you know and they have to be labeled praises so Great job putting the two blocks together. Um, so they feel appreciated, and that is an experience of mindfulness for them hmm. and, and for the parent as well. So this is a mindful relationship 
establishing that. And that actually works. Even a different ver- variation of this would work with between two partners. Oh. Um, but um, besides that, um, there are other forms of meditation a child could use, such as walking mindfully, because that's a little more active. Um, you know, you, you guide them through that, say, you know, kind of go through the sensation on the feet as you walk through, make them more aware of how the leg bends at the knees and they don't have to think when they move forward. Hmm. Um, that's one. There is another one that I see, like you said, prayers. Prayers are very useful for kids. Um, gratitude is also great. So talking about what they're grateful for. The other thing I have found very entertaining with kids is kirtan. Uh, kirtan is sort of a singing. It originates uh, in India and, hmm. you know, rep- sort of repetitive mantra like Hari Om. It doesn't even have to be Hari Om or anything Indian, but it's just repeating the same words in a tuneful way and clapping with them with rhythm. Children like rhythm and that keeps them busy. Um, That could be a good form of meditation for kids. Hmm. Some children sort of do this. I've noticed both of my kids when they're maybe around the age of two or two and a half sort of do this on their own. Anyway, they'll sort of harp on a few words and kind of make a song out of it. So that's sort of a type of meditation. Yes, and also another way of meditating with kids would be drawing mandalas with them, mm. or, or uh, basically coloring mandalas. It's it's a stress relief for us. It's a bonding experience for the kids, and they calm down. Okay, and can you explain visually for those listening what a mandala looks like, or so what it mandalas- can? Sure, sure. Mandala is a very, um, it's actually, it comes from Buddhist traditions, uh, but there is nothing religious about it. And in fact, I don't teach anything that's non-secular. So um, a mandala looks like a repeated pattern. And it's more like a picture, a page from a picture book. But usually they're round designs, circles, mean repetition. So uh, the goal of drawing a mandala just for pure stress release or mindfulness purposes is to, again, train the mind to come back to this anchor. So there is a sense of rhythm when you're drawing mandala. You'll see patterns repeating throughout. And if you if you actually Google mandalas, M-A-N-D-A, LA for kids, there are lots of uh, free downloadable printable options. And you just print one out and give them some color pencils and do it with them. They love that. Hmm. Another thing is Zentangle. Um, This is also something that could be looked up on the internet, but essentially it's drawing with them. And this is probably a bit for kids that are a little bit, young kids that are a little bit older, like four four to five, or even maybe three and a half, uh, where we draw out a story. Mm -hmm. So we take turns. 
So as you can see, mindfulness, uh, kids are essentially born mindful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we, we are actually, when we have them practice mindfulness, it's more about teaching them emotion regulation. Because as they grow up, their brains are still wiring and they miss fire. That's why we get those tantrums. Um, what mm. we're doing by these through these practices is teaching them that there is a calm place and it doesn't have to you don't you don't have to jump around or do anything crazy to have fun. You could be bored and just enjoy doing a bo boring thing like <laughs> a drawing a mandala. Hmm. Interesting. Um, what are some of the things that you've learned both in your um, your research and with working with families and kids that, that you think um, is really significant and important for people to know? Okay. That, that's actually a very good question. I'm thinking, as I say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I definitely think as parents, even though, even if we practice mindfulness, we will have slip ups. Mm. And um, to to be okay and forgiving towards ourselves if if that happens. The second thing I would say is um, use the child's mindfulness, the natural mindfulness. For example, the way they marvel over a little uh, weed or flower in the streets or a dump truck. Mm. See that sense of extraordinary happiness through really simple things and maybe partake in that. Uh, so in other words, using them as our teachers in mindfulness. Mm. Um, and that applies to when things don't go well as well. They know how to push our buttons. Uh, why not use those button pushing moments to stay calm? Hmm. And if we could make a conscious choice of doing that, um, you know, they would start learning that first, our parents' button cannot be pushed so easily. <laughs> and second, maybe there is a better way of responding uh, to a situation than reeling out emotionally. Hmm. Um, the other thing I would say is that mindful play concept is very important uh, from time to time if, if your child if, if a child is acting out having tantrums do that five minutes a day play with them mindfully with blocks say blocks are easy ones they're not messy um, let them lead you thank them for everything praise them for everything they do follow their lead just for five minutes a day, you see huge change in behavior. Uh, but the most important thing is, as parents, we need to practice our own meditation. That's the most important thing. Okay. So the most important thing as a parent is to take time for yourself yes. and work on yourself. This seems to be a recurring theme with every guest that I have on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that speaks about anything health related is uh, taking the time for self care. And this is a great timing for this because tomorrow is uh, Valentine's Day. Yes. And, um, and uh, I, I was thinking about this that why not use that one day, Valentine's Day, to uh, offer, first of all, self care and also. 
unconditional love to everyone, even mm. the ones that are not being nice to us, mm. and see what happens. Mm. That's so relevant and and sort of, I guess, how um, our country feels at the moment. It feels like there's turmoil every day. I wonder what would happen if that was brought to the Senate floor. <laughs> yes, I, I'm so happy to mention it because I, um, I think uh, by, and you know this already, I know, uh, by cultivating inner peace within ourselves individually, we can spread peace throughout. And uh, maybe that is why the world news is so disturbing, uh, because it is sort of a wake-up call to become more conscious within ourselves. Because there is also, stress could be very seductive. Um, there is, for example, in the U.S., there is a huge divide. There, there is, you know, there are, let's say, two groups of thoughts, political thoughts. How about we, instead of thinking that, oh, this news is really stressful, which, which you know, I have to admit, the news always doesn't sound very pleasant. <laughs> but how about using that as... A, an exercise, a lesson to not stick to the stress. Because st stress is really sticky. Mm. We like to be stressed sometimes. How about we let go of that stress and see what happens? Mm. I think the people around us will start doing that too. And then I think the divide will change. It will become one because we are. Yeah, that's very interesting. Well, I think that's a wonderful note to end on. So thank you so much for coming and and speaking about this. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate, review, and share. 